it's considered the ghost crime. It's called a ghost ghost crime. Um, and, and the reason is human trafficking wouldn't exist unless it was able to operate basically in front of all of us without recognition. Um, because of the different regulations that are in each uh, territory, you know, let's call it Europe versus APAC region. Let's call it uh, Europe versus South Africa. Um, in South Africa versus Canada, they all have um, very differing uh, opinions of what physical security is and what's allowed and what's not allowed. All that and so much more on this magnificently stupendous edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. David Villapondo, CPP is the executive director of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Gaming Commission. Mr. David Villapando, welcome to Screen Management Highlights, my friend. Good to be here. Thank you. Now, today we're going to talk about human sex trafficking in North American casinos, but specifically tribal casinos. There's a distinct carve-out on our topic today for a reason. David, let's define, first of all, what human sex trafficking is. It's not prostitution like some people think it is. We don't want to conflate things. Let's talk about a really good working definition of that. Yeah, really good question. Uh, and actually, even to back it up further, human trafficking in general uh, kind of kind of lays the foundation into the discussion regarding sex trafficking, uh, which is basically individuals that use force, fraud, or coercion uh, to obtain some sort of uh, labor or, or, or commercial sex act, some sort of revenue stream on the part of the trafficker. Um, and, and they're mostly three different types of human trafficking, sex trafficking being one, uh, forced labor, whether it's domestic servitude, childcare, elder abuse, working in uh, agricultural settings. Uh, and then uh, the, the strip clubs, the strip joints, the bars, where you may find victims of uh, human trafficking. Uh, and then sex trafficking specifically is uh, what we're most concerned about in the casino hospitality setting um, because it's where our victim uh, is being coerced, there again, threatened uh, to perform sex acts with sex clients, patrons, uh, to the benefit of the sex trafficker. Uh, the victims of sex trafficking are forced, coerced, threatened. Uh, to perform sex acts, and, and whether it's male or female, uh, typically uh, you'll have a, a victim of sex trafficking servicing up to 12 to 15 men uh, a day uh, with an income of between $1,000 and $1,500 a day per victim uh, to the sex trafficker. Uh, so it's important to make that distinction that the, the victims of these crimes are, are victims, the individuals involved. Uh, and, and, and what these traf traf uh, sex traffickers do, they're well-versed in identifying the most vulnerable in our society. Uh, typically, sex trafficking victims are between 12 and 24 years of age, although they can be older and they can be younger. Uh, but, but there is a, a, a typology, uh, someone who feels on the margin of society, unable to connect emotionally with others, uh, vulnerable based on economic. You know, it, it, it's in the news today. You know, we have over uh, 3 million people who have fled Ukraine because of the war. Um, and we already have sex, uh, human trafficking organizations right there at the Polish border with open arms pretending to be there to help those victims who are vulnerable. 
uh, and it's just to reel them into that uh, the, the the human trafficking ring. In fact, there's an article on the ACES Security Management website uh, today on uh, human trafficking organizations preying on the most vulnerable, uh, fleeing the war in Ukraine. So uh, it's it's important to understand that these individuals are vulnerable. That being said, it's also important to understand that they've been programmed. These are individuals whose humanity have been stolen from them. And typically it works like this, that the sex trafficker will uh, lure the victim in with praise, with gifts, with uh, compliments. You know, I'm your friend, I'm you. And then what they do is isolate the victim from all that they're familiar with, both mentally as well as physically. So they'll isolate the victim from family members, from friends. Uh, and then they'll physically move them to a location that the victim has no connection to. Then what they'll do is take everything that the victim materially owns and psychologically owns away from them. They'll take the ID, they'll take money, they'll take everything that, uh, that the victim owns, deny them access to the outside world, um, and basically program them. When I say program them, these are victims that are working uh, 15, 18 hours a day at the behest of the sex trafficker. Uh, they're denied food. Uh, they're only allowed to sleep four to five hours a day. So psychologically, they're being brainwashed. These victims can't think straight. Um, and that's important because when, when folks try to interdict, when folks try to provide the victim with an out, let's say a hospitality person or a security, ma uh, security manager, casino manager, recognizes that, wow, this person may be the victim of sex trafficking and attempts to approach them, they're met with resistance. They're met with anger. Uh, and, and that's for two reasons. One, the victim looks at their handler, the sex trafficker, and says, no, don't, don't try and save me because this person's going to beat me. They're going to torture me if I even give you any play at all. And the other thing is they've been programmed by the sex trafficker that law enforcement are the bad guys. Anybody that tends to, I'm the only one that can provide for you and save you, right? I'm the one upon who your survival is dependent. Uh, so it's not unusual for sex trafficking victims to resist attempts. So, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, some of the recommended strategies that casinos should use um, in trying to get these victims the help they need. Uh, but, but it's important to understand the typology of the victim. Tell us about some of the signs of recognition, maybe the recognition training that you give to employees in casinos, and maybe how the average person might use some of these things to recognize something that they they see in front of them. They don't know that that's human sex trafficking, but now they do. Yeah, so it, what, what we're recommending, what we're training, uh, is you establish those partnerships right up front with the subject matter experts, the folks who are the experts in interdicting uh, in sex trafficking. Uh, whether it's Polaris Project, uh, which is an absolutely great organization uh, that we rely on, or the National Human Trafficking Hotline, uh, Department of Homeland Security operates the Blue Campaign, totally dedicated to human trafficking. And if you go on the Blue Campaign website, there's a long list of resources. Uh, several task forces throughout the United States. Here in Michigan, we have the Southwest Michigan Human Trafficking Task Force. Um, in California, in Southern California, the San Diego District Attorney's Office uh, has been extremely proactive in human trafficking initiatives. And it does take a holistic approach to, 
rescue these victims and then provide the necessary services, health services, psychological services, uh, lodging, uh, mental health services. I mean, it, 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 it takes a, a, a very complex, well-practiced and pre-planned uh, intervention strategy. So what we encourage casinos to do is network with law enforcement, establish internal procedures when uh, sex trafficking is detected on property, and then a process by which law enforcement and human trafficking services, uh, service organizations can be activated best. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you, it, it's, it's, it's considered the ghost crime. It's called a ghost, ghost crime. Um, and, and the reason is human trafficking wouldn't exist unless it was able to operate basically in front of all of us without recognition. Uh, so when we're telling hospitality folks, look, you may have someone that comes and pays for their room with cash or prepaid card. Uh, they're requesting multiple rooms overlooking a parking lot uh, or next to a stairway that, that provides ready access to the room without having to walk through the main lobby. Very little luggage, um, reports of excessive noise, telephones or music the entire day coming from the room. Uh, how about this one? Frequent requests from hospitality for new linens and or towels, right? Because these rooms are being used multiple times by multiple patrons. Uh, so you'll see excessive requests for linens and towels, uh, denying hospitality access to the rooms, um, posting lookouts out in the hallway, which is should be easy for security or surveillance to detect the individuals looking up and down to make sure that um, their activity doesn't uh, remains unnoticed. Uh, occupants that appear anxious or nervous. Um, and then there's things inside the room you want to be aware of from a hospitality standpoint that are clear indicators that, uh, that things are amiss, right? The presence of drugs in a room, um, uh, request to stay on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's so that the sex trafficker can make a quick getaway uh, without investing too much money ahead of time uh, if the heat gets too bad. Um, excessive amounts, uh, a strong smell of bodily fluids or musk, uh, multiple computers, cell phones, credit cards, swiping machines, almost like a business is set up in the room. Um, same person reserving multiple rooms, uh, individuals leaving at all hours of the days and night and, and, and different individuals at that. Uh, evidence of pornography in the room. Uh, or sex paraphernalia, condoms, lubricants, lotion. So are things that hospitality can focus on that are clear indicators that criminal activity, specifically sex trafficking, is taking place in, their, in that location. Sex trafficking is going on in every single state in the union. Uh, you know, the, the, the statistic is quoted about 40,000 human trafficking victims worldwide. Uh, between 15,000 and 18,000 at, uh, at any given time here in the United States. Uh, of those, 81% uh, are trapped in forced labor, 25% are children, and about 75% are women and girls. Uh, and, and those are the folks that we find in sex trafficking situations. Uh, so for us here, for most tribal casinos, I would venture for most commercial casinos, uh, the first uh, effort is to keep the traffickers off of our property. So that's through prevention, through awareness. Uh, and that can be done by posting signage uh, to make the trafficker aware that 
we know what sack trafficking looks at on our property and we're going to be on the lookout for it. Uh, exchanging information with law enforcement regarding sex trafficking uh, rings making their way from one side of the country to the other. So we know when they're in our neighborhood uh, and they're again being proactive with regard to intervention. So I would venture to say we're preventing uh, more sex trafficking in those properties that are aware of what it looks like and prepared to take action. Uh, then we're actually intervening, thank goodness. Uh, and, and that's where we want to be. We want to keep it out in the first place. Uh, and, you know, I'll give prompts to my my uh, counterpart, the vice president of security right down the road at Firekeepers uh, in Battle Creek. We actually borrowed their model of awareness with regard to sex trafficking. The VP of security is George Jencott, uh, also an ACES uh, CPP. Um, and he has an absolutely awesome program. So whether you reach out to uh, reach out to me, uh, which you're more than welcome to do, or, or reach out to George. We do have programs uh, that we put in place to raise that awareness and establish those internal processes and protocols for our casino management uh, and the constant conversation we have with our respective law enforcement agencies. Mr. David, excellent information, excellent awareness. Uh, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. And be, feel free to check in any time with some updates. Uh, I'd love to hear more about this from you. It's really probably one of the most important issues of humanity to get a handle on this, and, and we need to focus on it. Thanks again. Thank you, and, and, and great point. You know, there's no lack of evil in the world, and, it, and it's up to us to intervene with these victims. And when we're able to intervene, we do meet with success. We are able to stem the side of sex trafficking. I would uh, really encourage folks to visit NIGC's website, uh, Vice Chair Jeannie Hovland is very proactive uh, around the subject of human trafficking in general and sex trafficking in particular. NIGC has a whole website uh, of places that folks can go for additional information, access to the National Human Trafficking Hotline Polaris uh, Project. So there's some great groups out there, DHS uh, and their Blue Campaign. So really encourage folks to, to do the research and hit those hyperlinks and gather as much information as you can for your casino staff. Brandon Smith is the Director of Security Technologies for Canopy Growth Corporation, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Mr. Brandon Smith, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Today's topic is managing the security team and technology infrastructure in the cannabis industry. Now, when you say cannabis industry, oh, but that's broad. We're talking, you know, U.S.-based, overseas-based different countries, different jurisdictions. It's a really a, a broad market. Let's start by kind of kind of narrowing this down to some of the specific technology infrastructure that is used in the cannabis industry that's perhaps a little bit different than other industries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, to speak to your point, uh, absolutely, it is broad. Um, you know, we, we operate in territories um, that that have uh, federally permissible uh, marijuana. And so um, with that uh, comes a whole sea of different regulations that you have to adhere to. And, um, you know, furthermore, the different aspects of cannabis business, um, such as retail dispensaries are under completely different governing rules than uh, grow facilities. And so each one of those, um, you know, subsets of the cannabis industry, it has very fine tuned, um, detailed uh, regulations that you must adhere to. And a lot of that is the physical security requirements of, you know, a, a retail dispensary, of a facility grow, and, and those change as you expand globally. Um, so, you know, to start off, uh, 
our, our main bread and butter is within the Canadian region. And uh, we have a, a, a sea of uh, dispensary chains uh, as well as uh, growth facilities uh, here in Canada. So to speak to, you know, some of the technologies that we have in place in, in our growth facilities, um, you know, each one of our facilities uh, has a, a fence vibration detection system to kind of start our first layer of security. Um, add on top of that, uh, you have then your building uh, perimeter, your building envelope, which uh, as you can imagine, every single exit and entrance is not only covered with an intrusion system, but as well as an access control system. And then every entry point and exit point is a camera on both sides. And so those are pretty standard for, you know, across the board, but where it really dives into cannabis specific things is, um, you know, for instance, visitor management, uh, where uh, we, we allow, um, uh, visitors to come up to our facilities, sign in on a uh, tablet that then gets put into our access control system and notifies the the person that will be um, they'll be meeting with. It then gets sent down to the security desk at the front door. Um, the security desk has all the information. They create an access card and privilege and go about uh, doing the orientation for a site. And that's all custom done um, for us specifically in the cannabis industry. Uh, you know, taken in Canada, for instance, where we have uh, different different levels of employees that are allowed in different areas. And so we need to identify whether they're going to be a security clearance holder, whether they're a non-security clearance holder. And, and those specific privileges mean the areas that they can access within the building. Um, so, you know, that that's a first step um, adding in, um, you know, the, the different layers that we, we go about uh, designing our facilities. So as I, you know, left off there, we were started at the building envelope. As you start going inside of the building, um, you know, we, we, we really design our, our sites based off of an onion, the onion layer. Um, and so once you're, once you're inside of a production space, again, you are fully armed, you're fully have intrusion devices on, on every entry and exit point cameras throughout the facility. Um, we have uh, um, push button panic detectors. We have um, vibration detection systems on any type of uh, secure storage, as well as a uh, vault. Um, we, we basically are loaded out um, more so than, than any industry I've worked in before. Let's transition a little bit into defining technology as it relates to privacy. So if I threw up some cameras in Germany, that's a security technology enhancement. However, there's a privacy component to that, isn't there? How long you can save the video, what you can use it for. That's a big challenge, even for the cannabis, cannabis industry, isn't it? 100%. And, um, you know, to speak to that, uh, Germany is very um, a very uh, finicky uh, market when it comes to security technologies and, and arguably one of the most challenging. And specifically speaking, you know, you've got GDPR rules, uh, like you were mentioning, that, that limit how long you can keep video footage, that limit where you can take video footage, and any type of uh, information that you're storing from there. But as well in the German market, um, there you have to go about designing your systems where you do not have employees who are working um, their main jobs uh, that will be on camera 24-7. And I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive what we do in North America here, but um, we, we really have to design the systems where, you know, a workstation that someone would be standing at, um, you know, regardless if they're just a production employee that's filling, um, you know, call it uh, vape lines or, or filling any type of uh, manufacturing um, uh, orders that are coming in. If that is that employee's regular standing area, 
then we cannot essentially have a camera there unless we justify the needs. And justifying the needs is a lot harder uh, than, than you uh, would think. So we have to come up with a full-scale report on um, why we need cameras here. We have to then work with our local teams in that area to sell it to the, um, the, the state regulator. And, and what that means is that um, we have to apply for permission to have cameras in those areas. We cannot just go about and install cameras and have them recording. And, and this becomes tricky when it comes to vault areas, um, especially vaults you know, where there's ongoing personnel that are coming in and out, ongoing um, personnel that are maybe uh, have a filling station or a weighing station that would be in a vault. Um, those specific areas where you know personnel will be, or basically a no limit uh, area. And, uh, you know, coming from any market uh, within Canada or basically anywhere else in the world um, outside of Europe, uh, it, it's challenging, right? Um, because everywhere else we would, we would install, you know, call it 10 cameras to cover every single blind spot and every single angle and predict where product may go from there. But we truly have to work with the employees uh, and then the employees have to uh, essentially sell it to the state regulator. So it, it's absolutely a challenge, Chuck. So you're gonna have multiple gold standards. It depends on the jurisdiction. <laughs> I guess that's it, right? Yeah, and hundred uh, percent. And and to speak to that, it actually makes trying to carry a global specification for your for your security standards quite challenging, um, because of the different regulations that are in each uh, territory. You know, let's call it Europe versus APAC region. Let's call it uh, Europe versus South Africa. Um, in South Africa versus Canada, they all have um, very differing uh, opinions of what physical security is and what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, and in trying to carry a specification that you know my team corporately can can service and support on a global basis, uh, it is challenging. I, I can find you know call it a level five uh, intrusion system in Australia, isn't classified as a level one here in North America. And uh, and in that itself, um, you know, us security technology people, we want to make sure that um, you know we're aligning the same products for each one of our sites as best as we can in order to support and service it. Because you know, the more my technicians understand how to support the site, the faster they can they can keep uh, the system online. Uh, thus, no you know downtime. The more we have kind of one-off uh, or legacy systems. Uh, the more challenging it is because you got to make sure the technicians are certified they're capable of talking to the manufacturer of the products they you know are able to deal with the local integrators it's uh, absolutely a challenge um and and kind of one that keeps me up most nights uh just trying to maintain some sort of uh global specification do we think that the technology drives the security or is security standards put into you know kind of invent the technology to solve the problem You've seen this happen before where they come up with a standard that doesn't exist and the industry has to build to it. Are you finding you're building to a standard or is the technology in place for you to utilize? Um, so it's, it's a fair question and an absolutely great question. Um, I would define that as per territory. And, and the reason I say that is, um, you know, for instance, in, in Canada, Health Canada has done a fantastic job of putting out these security requirements that we have to build to. They're very uh, above and beyond, which most practitioners would would go about doing. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, like you say, it is a is a new burgeoning industry. And um, at, at the end of the day, we've got to 
we have to maintain trust and we will never have trust in the public if our products are, are getting loose with, um, you know, the black market, if our products are ending up on the street that are not through licensed channels and so forth. So, you know, the onus uh, is, is on us to ensure that, um, you know, we are, we are building these systems to the highest specification. Um, and, and specifically, you know, to speak to some of the, the specifications in, in Canada, like we have to keep our, our video footage for one year. Um, now that is higher than the specification for for any type of um, uh, vaults that, that hold opiate opiates. Um, it's it's six month requirement, and so you know one can argue uh, that it should be at least similar. Um, I I'm not here to argue that because, like I say, we have to build up the public trust and the public perception. And until we have, you know, 10, 20 years under our belt, uh, that that shows that you know we can keep our product safe, we can keep our product off the streets or in the hands of the wrong people. Then, yeah, I I, I fully support it. Um, in other territories, Chuck, uh, you know, if we're talking down in Colombia, if we're talking in South Africa or Lesotho, um, we have to build the plan ourselves and then sell the local government on it. Um, so it's a little bit different from some of the other territories that we operate in. They don't necessarily have the gold standard. They have uh, a great idea of what they're looking for, and they list out you know very basic requirements. But you have to sell them on your operational security plan and what technology you're putting in place. Now, for a guy like me, that's you know the writing is in gold there because it, it kind of lets me loose and my mind uh, full of imagination on what we can and can't do. So you know, in Colombia. Um, we had uh, three layers of uh, a perimeter of fence, you know, two layers using um, different fencing. And then the third layer using an organic uh, bush. That's a, a very um, thorny uh, bush that, that ran the full eight kilometer perimeter of our facilities. You know, match that with some drone, uh, some drone catching devices from uh, D-Drone. And uh, yeah, I'm a kid in a candy store. So it, it, it really is uh, different um, per territory they operate in. All right, so we've talked about kind of the traditional high-tech stuff in, in security, and some of it's unique to the cannabis industry, some of it's cross-purpose in other places. But really, my opinion of good, good security in the long run is intelligence, data, information, brand awareness. Who is trashing my brand somewhere? How do you guys handle that? And do, I'm sure you have some really good technology available for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked. Um, you know, it, at the end of the day, it is uh, one of the largest concerns that the corporation does have. Um, you know, outside of your physical security intrusion, um, the biggest aspect is keeping on top of future um, future incidents, future crises, um, and, and basically where where tragedy is happening around your facilities. And so we employ a team of analysts as well as, um, you know, programs such as Data Miner, Samdesk to not only keep track of, you know, the general awareness that is happening um, about our brands, our facilities, um, our executives and our general staff, um, but as well, you know, we keep an eye on territories that we know travelers are heading to. So, you know, part of our, our program within corporate security is having travel management. And, you know, travel management, um, is funneled through for locations. And so if we know we have a CEO going to call it New York, we have our systems, our, our open source intelligence systems uh, locked in for a geocached area around where they'd be traveling, you know, the path from the airport and so and so forth to let us know of any type of, you know, protests, any type of fire, critical emergencies. Um, so there's just one aspect of using that. 
The other is, you know, using the same geocache uh, around our, our facilities for police incidents, um, everything from weather incidents. Uh, you know, if you've got a, a hurricane or a tornado that's closing in off of the coast of Florida, um, you're generally going to want to let your, your employees know um, or, or the general managers know of the, the site. So we like to refer to ourselves as kind of a fusion cell versus just a security cell. And, and the reason we do that is because we try to be a force multiplier for the business. Um, and, and in doing so, you know, our open source intelligence program is a, is a huge aspect of that. Um, so we feed conversations going on about a new product release to, you know, the marketing team. We feed conversations going on, um, you know, from from uh, former staff members we to the, the appropriate people. We, we feed all different types of conversations as they relate to the different sectors of the business that are all funneled through open source intelligence. And so we're lucky enough that um, that security is becoming more relevant uh, versus, you know, what people refer to us as is, you know, the cameras, the access and the intrusion guys or the guards. Um, so it, it's another section of our business that allows us to expand. It allows us to kind of get our, our hands in different aspects of the business and uh, people appreciate it. Um, it's it's honestly one of the um, foremost uh, kind of uh, challenge. No, not challenges. It's one of the most foremost um, uh, avenues we're, we're approaching these days. And, and this ties into our virtual global security operations center. So allowing our operators and our analysts to um, virtually attend uh, a security operations center than, rather than physically be in one spot, all using cloud-based technologies. Um, so you know, we can have someone log in, view everything that's going on around a facility, match that with the alarms that are going around um, from, you know, our systems, and then spit out a report within, you know, five, 10 minutes of any type of incidents um, or, or the repercussions of, you know, um, some sort of incident that happened around uh, your facility. So I truly believe that uh, as the cannabis industry grows, uh, as any business grows, um, you know, security, and open source intelligence will be a huge portion of that. So I'm, I'm glad you asked, Chuck. So Brandon, let me ask you about this. I know you're managing an internal uh, infrastructure. What do you hear in the industry uh, about people that need to fulfill the requirements? Maybe I have one cannabis shop in LA. I got to meet these standards in LA, which are high. Am I going to go hire uh, a security consultant, a cannabis security consultant? You know, and a lot of these guys don't want to do it. And here's what I find. They're not business people right? They're a guy that had a great idea to open up a marijuana shop. And, you know, he's not a Fortune 500 company with an MBA. And this is a challenge to them to get, understand and get this right. What is your, your sense of the industry on, on the smaller uh, shops? Where are they going with security? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, to speak to your first question there, um, I absolutely believe in hiring a security consultant if you are a small business. And the reason I do that is, the reason I say that is specifically the amount of regulations that we have to go through, um, the amount of um, of documents that essentially you need to be a part-time lawyer to understand um, is quite substantial. And hiring a security consultant to not only um, read through these these documents and then apply their best knowledge on how to achieve that for your budget. That to me is worth the savings because at the end of the day, you can have a, anyone come in, you can, you can spend $100,000 on a security system or you can spend $20,000 on a security system. At the end of the day, both are gonna get you licensed, 
Um, but you need to understand the limitations of what the $100,000 system will do versus the $20,000 system. So that needs to be well versed with the customer. Um, the the capabilities um, of, of the systems that are put in place and you know the future expansion is, is also one of them. Um, and then the other aspect is just the licensing package. Um, you know most regulators require a heavy fiscal security licensing package, and that comes with um, you know pr proving the the clarity of each one of your camera shots, um, providing challenge reports for every single one of your intrusion devices, um, both uh, you know alarmed and restored. Um, Proving um, your your system can provide images from you know call it 365 days back, call it 160 days back. Um, you know there there's a lot of benefit that come with hiring a security consultant that I think the everyday average uh, consumer would just I, it's not impossible, but it's just the extra headache that I I don't believe you would want to take on as you start up your new business. Good stuff, my friend. Speaking to Brandon Smith about security technology in the global cannabis industry. Fascinating topic, and uh, it's growing and growing and growing. And, and that's a little play on words, but it's true. Uh, it's here to stay, and uh, I'm glad we're getting this right with the proper standards. And you know what? I think this industry helps raise the bar on other industries. And, I, and you know, for that alone, it's a good thing, my friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Chuck. Uh, great pleasure here.